Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Spiritual Practice and Mindfulness, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Christy Adloff, a host of the channel. Today, I'm talking to Yael Shai about her book, What Now? Meditation for Your 20s and Beyond. Welcome to the show, Yael. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I wonder if you could just begin by telling us a little about yourself and how you came to be interested in mindfulness and meditation. Sure. Um, So I started getting into meditation when I was actually in college and experiencing a lot of suffering at the same time, um, like world suffering. It was the, it was during nine 11. And so I had, and I was in New York city. And so I had some trauma from that family suffering. My parents were getting divorced. Um, I had a lot of economic insecurity, um, and my boyfriend broke up with me. And so it was just kind of a lot of things at once. And then coupled together with just the regular angst of that age, um, that younger age of being like, what is the point of being alive? Who am I? What do I want in this world? What is for me in this world? Where do I fit in? Is there any such thing as love? Will I ever find love? And so all of these forces combined with maybe my natural tendency towards being anxious, um, just kind of collided. And I had a, I was having a really, really hard time, many, many panic attacks, lots of anxiety. And I found a meditation retreat without ever having meditated before and didn't really understand what it was. And through the retreat, um, uh, just so many things became clear to me. I, and I, and I began this journey of really trying to understand and unlock all of the, the pain that was inside of me. And then many, many, many years later, so I'm continuing to practice and I'm deepening this meditation practice over the years. And, um, I became a meditation teacher. I practiced with um, two different communities, a Zen community and a Jewish community. And I am now the senior director of Global Spiritual Life for New York University and the founder and director of Mindful NYU, which is the largest campus-based mindfulness program in the country. And I wrote this book that you mentioned, and I teach meditation to groups and communities and also privately to people across the world. That's wonderful. That's an, I mean, I think in your book, you said you started just so people can appreciate with a seven day silent retreat, which is jumping yes. full in, right? <laughs> I truly did not understand what it was. Like, I don't think I read the fine print. I just thought it was going to be like a spa vacation. Um, and it was definitely <laughs> not that. Right. Well, I just um, really do appreciate your book, The What Now? Meditation for Your 20s and Beyond, because I recall my own experience of college and just the anxiety that occurs with all of the existential questions of who am I? And like you said, like, how do I find love? And how do I balance my life with school and work and relationships? Yes. And so I think it's fascinating that you created and developed this mindful NYU. And can you tell us 
how you how you develop that and kind of maybe offer um, what it does for students in the community? Sure. Um, yeah, like you said, I think I think that 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 time was just so difficult for me. Um, and so as I got older and deeper into meditation, I was like, well, first of all, just selfishly, I wanted a place to be meditating regularly with other people. And I was working at NYU for a, a policy center. And so I thought, well, maybe we should have something here. And then this other huge side benefit being like, uh, I wish I had had something when I was here. Maybe it would be nice to create something for the current students. And so um, I kind of scrounged around for space and materials. And we started as just this small sitting group. And I found a student at the time who was really interested in this. Her name was Elizabeth Cousid. And she's still um, just a wonderful person out in the world now, many, many years later. And we started it together and started with just like a handful of people that we would recruit and um, and some cushions that they gave me like a couple hundred dollars to buy. And it grew and grew and grew. And pretty soon we had far outgrown the borrowed space we were using. We were like wildly popular. And it happened that in uh, a new spiritual life building was opening on campus. So we started in 2009 and the new building opened in 2012. And so I, as I became the director of that building in that office, I moved Mindful NYU under that umbrella. And we've just really ballooned since then. So we went from this one little sitting group to having meditations every single day of the week. Um, sometimes two meditations in one, some meditation groups in one day, because we have also, in addition to kind of just regular drop-in classes, we have affinity groups for students of color and for LGBTQ plus students, as well as one for um, peer-led, like a, a student, student-run student club that we help to support. And then we also have... Um, Retreats actually, one is coming up this weekend for our, our outbreath community, the LGBTQ plus community. Um, we have workshops, huge, wonderful events, and speaker series, and trainings, um, lots and lots and lots of programming, and that's been really a joy and um, just wonderful to, and not the only one that does it anymore. We have a whole staff, but just to be doing this with other people and with this wonderful community at NYU. Yeah. That's such a wonderful resource for all of you actually. Um, and, and one of the things I was thinking, and you talk a little bit about this in this, in your book. And so, um, I just think of being a student and how much anxiety and stress comes from, um, the uncertainties. And you actually said in your book that anxiety and stress might have something to teach you. And so I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit more about that and how you could use mindfulness in a way to be in tune with your anxiety and stress and what lessons maybe can come from that. Yes. So, I mean, we are living in in wildly anxious times. I think that's the young people, but it's really everyone. Um, and some of it, is stuff that requires action. And so 
sometimes fear and anxiety is sort of a gift because it, it's telling us you need to do something to, to make some changing so that the thing that you're fearing doesn't become a reality. So I'm thinking of sort of climate change and social justice issues and things that we need to address in order to have a better and a you know, more healed society. And then there's the kind of overturn layer on top of the layer of like, okay, this is what you can do. Let's do it. And then you're still kind of up all night worrying and worrying. And it's beyond the level of anything that you can actually do in that moment of time. And so that's when it it kind of, you need to turn inwards and you need to say like, well, what is this fear, anxiety trying to teach me? So I've noticed that it's really, um, it's helpful to think about anxiety in two primary ways, aside from the the first one that I mentioned. Um, so the, those two ways are first to see whether there, that anxiety is about something in the future, which it says it's about. It's always like, oh, what if this goes badly? What if you never find love? What if this happens and, you know, and this is the result and, and then it gets your whole body and system going? So a question you can check out and see whether or not it's true is to see whether that future thinking is actually unresolved historical pain that is asking for some healing. And so for instance, um, a big kind of anxious worry of mine was always about like, will I ever find love? Um, I just struggled a lot with dating when I was younger and just felt like it just wasn't going to be for me. And, you know, I was invisible to people. I was never going to be like pretty enough or good enough to find something real. And I also like, what if it's not even real? And so all these kinds of questions would really rack me a lot of the time when I was young. So a lot of the practice of meditation for me was to start to dig underneath those stories and those fears and be like, well, why am I so sure I know what that would be like, that fear of not finding love? Oh, it's because I experienced something like that in my past and it really hurt and it was really painful. I grow, you know, growing up, I had a feeling like I wasn't loved, I wasn't lovable and it and it's still this wound inside that then is manifesting itself as anxiety. And so doing some of that work in therapy and in meditation of going back to the that wound and trying to um, take care of it and heal it and love it was a big part of the work. So that's one huge area of where does where in this anxiety might there be something that needs healing actually from the past. Which most of us have, right? Oh, yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, yes. It, it does make me want to ask you just a little bit so people have an understanding because I think um, when I'm working with individuals, I oftentimes will recommend meditation because I do think there are so many benefits from it. And I think still I feel like many people believe that the idea of meditation is just to clear your mind. And I was wondering if you could tell or how you tell students to, how they might want to start a meditation practice. Um, how would you begin one? Because I'm guessing most people don't go jump in with the seven-day silent retreat. Right, right. <laughs> um, so I would say um, definitely 
I do not believe in, you know, people are different and teachers are different, but it is not my practice that the meditation is about clearing the mind or transcending the mind or going into some kind of Zen still mind place. Um, it's just not my practice. It's not the way that I do the, the practice. Sometimes you can calm, sometimes, you know, calmness and relaxation is a side product of meditation, but is not the goal. For me, the goal is about um, being with what is and being able to be present with what is. And sometimes what is there is really painful. And sometimes it's beautiful. And sometimes it's everything in between. And so it's just a, a, a process of strengthening the muscle of being with what is. And, it, and the mind will keep thinking thoughts. And that's totally okay. And actually what the mind does, the same way that the heart beats. And so if you think when you're trying to meditate, you're not a bad meditator. You're actually just human. In terms of setting up a practice, um, it's really helpful to find a community and a teacher that you like. And there's a couple different ways to do that. So one is like old school ways. If you have anything in your neighborhood and there's more and more of these like actual centers that you can go to and find people um, and you like the way the teacher teaches, that's awesome. Uh, another way in our you know digital age is via apps. And I know people are getting more and more and more into apps and apps. Some of the apps are incredible. And I especially want to recommend um, an app called Journey Live because they're not paying me. But I think what's cool about it is that there's live teachers. It's kind of like they call it like a Peloton for meditation. And it's so helpful when you're, especially when you're starting to be able to ask questions to be able to like actually engage with the teacher rather than just have a recording. And so um, if it's within your price range to do it, I really recommend doing it because then you have some like a little bit closer to a tangible community. And then the third option is um, just finding the apps yourself and doing it, doing them on your own, which is still better than nothing and wonderful. But um but those are those are sort of the different easy on routes. You can also go on a retreat, which lots and lots of people do, and um, and they're wonderful. But yeah, if it's a little scary to start that way, that's understandable. Right. No, I I do meditate, but it has been a challenge for me, and so I also don't think it is about clearing your mind. I agree with yes. you, but um, I think it is trying to be present and being where you are with what you have. Yes. Exactly. Exactly. Mm -hmm. One of the things you talked about that I um, just think is so interesting for the college age population is, um, I don't know if you're familiar with Chris Germer, but um, he's a, he does a lot of compassion, yes, um, self-awareness. And one of the things he said in a talk I went to of his was that, that aloneness is something that so many people experience. And he was saying that if you walk down the street and you just look in everybody's eyes, everyone is probably saying, please love me, please love mm. me. Yes, um, which I found very powerful, actually. And I, I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit about, um, you talk about it in your book as well, mindful relationships, yes. and as well how this age group and how technology has had such an effect on being in relation with one another. Mm -hmm. And you will see two college age students sitting at dinner together, both on their phones, and maybe they're actually texting each other. I don't know, but <laughs> yes. you know, when yes. you talk about just like the impact that that's having and just um, also just like, I think 
sometimes it can be useful and sometimes I think it can be harmful. But if, if you could just talk about your experience um, working with the college-age population and, and thinking about mindful relationships. Yeah. I mean, I know just from them telling me on the one side and the other side, just from all the research that supports this, that loneliness um, and I, like feelings of isolation are completely on the rise. I do think it's related entirely to our kind of phone addictions and social media addictions and the sense that like you never are off. And, um, and the, that's real. And I also am trying to hold the truth that this, this is how this generation is living. And so to completely be like, just get rid of your phone is not feasible. And so there has to be, so it's interesting that at the same time that um, mental health issues, anxiety, loneliness, depression, and suicidal ideation have all risen on college campuses. The desire for um, meditation and the growth and the interest of meditation has also risen. And so I think there is a natural looking for ways and outlets and means to shut off your phone or to find a different way to figure out who you are and to also reach across in relationships. Um, And so that hunger is definitely there, I think, as a result of just the lives that we lead. And so I think that the the journey is about like slowing down the process of how we use our phones um, and and learning to have intimacy and compassion and and self-understanding even with the phones in our lives. Um, and so I talk about about a bunch of different ways to do this in the book, and one of them is, you know, when you're scrolling through on social media and you notice yourself feeling like more and more and more lonely or more and more bad about yourself, which all the research says is true. And you, if you can just kind of pause in those moments and be like, what did I come on here for? What was the moment before I pressed that app or I started scrolling? Like, what am I looking for? And that kind of touch in into the self to be like, oh, I think I'm a little bit lonely. Like, I think I'm I'm just kind of like looking for a distraction or just like in that kind of addictive mode. And so trying to really understand and isolate the feeling and then ask yourself the question, like, is this helping is this getting me closer to what I want? Is this like supporting me? And sometimes like the the pull is too strong and then you can just, you know, say like, well, I'll look for two more minutes and I'm going to turn this off. And sometimes just the awareness of it and shining that light of awareness of it can, can kind of help in those situations. And so there's lots of different means, including relationships and sex and, um, having a hard conversation where we're just like, we have to kind of reteach ourselves to take in another person, to approach the unknown and to slow it all down in this kind of time of endless, quick acceleration. Yeah. I mean, you definitely talked about how um, vast and popular the um, meditation center is there. And so it does make me think that the students are kind of seeking, how do I, how do I be in community and how do I find 
ways to slow down and pause. Yes, exactly. Um, and and I think I've heard that a lot. Like part of meditation is learning to pause that pause yes. of thinking like, what am I looking for? What am I needing? And being in tune with that. Yes, exactly. That's a good way of saying it. Yeah. And you do, um, it just makes me go into, I also think a lot of meditation is in, it's oftentimes what you've stated is getting to know yourself better and knowing what's going on for you. And one of the things that you talk about in your book and that I have um, also done her teaching, but Tara Brock's RAIN, which is her acronym for dealing with emotions. And I thought it might be nice for you to walk us through that just so people have a little bit of an experience of it is a meditation practice, but it's also being present and being aware of like what's going on. Yes. Um, It's such a beautiful practice. And actually, I think she just released another book that's (laughs) all about this. Um, So yes, it rain, rain stands for recognize, allow, inquire, and nourish or nurture. Um, So to, to take us through it, maybe I'll start with something like um, uh, anger. Like if we feel a strong feeling of anger, how would we practice with that? so recognize. So the first thing is, oh, wait a minute, I'm angry. And most of the time we realize we're angry, like after we send an email that we regret or say something to someone we regret or another word, you know, like are mean to someone. So that, that quick reactivity often happens so fast that the recognize is about slowing down and noting it for yourself that this is happening before you decide how you want to respond. So that's like the recognition. The allowing or accepting is then stopping all the resistance to that initial um, response. So for instance, um, if you're angry, then maybe your initial response to the anger is like, oh, this feels so uncomfortable. I need to get it off of me. That's why we yell at someone or hurt someone in some way. Or we're angry and then we shove it down and we just kind of like bottle it up inside, which then manifests later as something really bad, like a depression or you know, pain in the body because feelings don't like to be shoved down. I think the the phrase is like, what we resist persists. So if we don't act out on it and we don't shove it down, then we have a different path. And that path is allowing it to be there to soften your resistance to it and to really basically be like, okay, you're, there's anger here. There's anger in the system. That's what's happening right now. I'm going to just be with it for a minute before I decide how I'm going to respond. And just breathing and just sometimes Tara Brock talks about like putting a hand on your face or your heart, just being like, all right, all right, poor baby, this is really hard. You know, just kind of staying there and staying present with it. So that's that A for allow. Um, The I for inquire is not like, a heavy duty inquiry. It's more like, um, what, where do I feel this in the body? What does, how do I know I'm angry? Like we all kind of take for granted that we know what we feel when we feel it, but it, the eye kind of walks you back into that feeling and says, how do I know? Am I hot in the face? Is my heart beating fast? Do I notice tenseness in my shoulders? 
And so it's kind of just staying with the body, bodily response of the emotion and breathing and noticing. And the inquiry is just gentle, soft inquiries about that anger in the body. Is it moving? Does it have a texture? Does it have a color? That sort of thing. And the N for nurture or nourish is asking the question, what can I do for myself when this is present for me right now? What can I, how can I soften it? How can I soften the landing of this difficult emotion? And so depending on where you are when you're practicing this, like if you're um, walking down the street or you're in class or, you know, at work, sometimes it can be hard to like fully take a bubble bath, for instance. But another way you can nurture yourself is to just, you know, to be like, poor baby, this is really, really hard. Or to, you know, to put that hand on your chest or your stomach or drink a glass of water. Just ask that question, what can I do? What can I do? Taking Even taking a few breaths um, just to support yourself. Most of us usually ask the question like, why do I feel this way? Why did they, who's to blame in this situation? And this is kind of like a gentle release of that question and more like, what can I do? How can I soften this? How can I be with this? And then practicing that. Yeah, I think um, recently I just heard Kristen Neff talk about using rain. So Kristen Neff is another self-compassion researcher. Yeah, she's amazing. Chris Germer, I know. <laughs> um, and she talked about using rain and, and, um, what she said is that her son got diagnosed with autism. And on that day, she was supposed to leave for a self-compassion retreat. Mm. And she said to her husband, it's okay, I'm not going to go. And he's like, no, I need you to go because I need you to come back and teach me how to be self-compassionate about this. Mm. So she talks about using rain and just like recognizing that she was anxious and she was angry and, you know, um, had all these feelings and am I a bad mother? Is this my fault? Did I eat the wrong food? And then came to accept it and was like, you know, this isn't what we anticipated. This isn't what we imagined our life to look like, but we're going to be able to do it and we're going to be able to get through this and, and then investigating. And when I work with um, patients, I tell them, because I think investigate can sometimes feel judgmental to people. Yeah. yeah. So I say, you want to almost be like inspector gadget. So it's more playful. <laughs> That's great. Um, and, and kind of go with that idea because, it, right, it makes you laugh. And then it's like, oh, and then you can, I feel like it's a little lighter. Yes. But, and so she talks about investigating the feelings that she had and then nourishing is what she said. She always says to her son, baby, you're okay. And so that's what she gave to herself as well. Aww, I just found so it very beautiful. powerful, right, to like hear her example. And so just using that as – um a real life thing. And, and then she said she was able to be compassionate and be compassionate about the situation and um, oh, not feel, not hold all of that tension. Yes. Yes. It's so beautiful. And like everybody does find words that, that feel right for them. Right. You know, like I, I have a, a client that I work with that talks about like, um, he says like, Oh, little buddy, to himself that <laughs> <laughs> has great. to like feel like the right kind of talk and yeah. um, the right kind of thing. Like some people, even just talking to yourself is just too weird. And so sometimes then you can kind of imagine somebody who loves you or who has loved you in the past and just kind of borrow from them that feeling of love towards yourself. 
And it can also be like a touch, like you said, like Tara Brock does teach the loving touch. And so yes, sometimes I think absolutely like being able yep. to give yourself that loving Whatever touch works. can be nourishing in that moment. Right. Yes. Right. So yeah. yeah, it's finding. And that's what I think is so great about meditation is people are able to find what works for them and what, um, what's helpful and what's not helpful. Yes, absolutely. So I do talk a lot about, um, you have a chapter on like feeling emotions and not being emotions. And so I just was wondering if you could just expand upon that a little bit um, after we did the rain of like, that's feeling the emotions, right? And being aware of the emotions, but what you kind of meant by being the emotions, which I think a lot of, a lot of times that does happen. Yes. With anger and sadness. Oh yeah. And I think our, like English actually sets you up for this in a rough way because just the language, (laughs) because Mm -hmm. we have the language, like I'm angry, I'm depressed, I'm sad. And the length, that kind of speaking of it in that way, it does feel viscerally like it's a solid thing that then you become. And once you've become it, like you're in it and there's no other room in there for anything else. And so for me, it's been really helpful to replace that with sadness is here or loneliness is here, anger is here. And why that helps is because it doesn't kind of keep solidifying this idea of like, A, that you are the thing and B, that you are anything because like some probably too long of a conversation to get into here, but that kind of constriction around a sense of like, I am a separate being from everyone and everything else is really, really painful. It's like in Buddhism, it sort of goes to the root of where suffering comes from. That belief, that erroneous belief that we are separate from each other and that we're not completely interconnected and interpenetrated with each other all the time. And it kind of goes to what you're saying about like you go, when you go and you see everybody's eyes being like, love me, love me, you know, we're just living in these delusions of separateness all the time. And so to say like sadness is here is just nice because it's not it's not kind of feeding that delusion that like I am, if that makes sense. It does. And actually, even as you say that, it feels softer to me. It almost feels like a release. That idea of like, it's here, it's not, it's not defining me, right? Right. It it's, um, feels less judgmental. It gives me space to just experience it and not be it. Right, exactly. And other things might be here too. It's right. that in that space. Um, I think about it sometimes like, I'm a kind of preschool teacher and that I'm taking attendance and I'm just like kind of gently tapping these things on the head, like sadness is here. Yep. Check. Hunger is here. You know, just kind of taking that attendance, being really loving and gentle with all the little children. Um, and that kind of helps me out. I, I find both of us are using these playful children type <laughs> things because I think it does make it lighter. So yes. um, I agree with you, that idea of this checklist of like, okay, you're here and it's okay. <laughs> right? Yes, exactly. Like you wouldn't kick a, a kid out from preschool, I hope. And so there's no need to like get rid of any feeling at all. Right. And that's what I try to teach people too is feelings are just feelings. They don't have to control you. Yes, exactly. 
Yeah. So, I mean, that kind of goes into this idea of, and you started this, of just the stress and anxiety in the world. And I see it definitely in my practice that um, it just feels more and more people are seeking therapists and having a hard time finding them. And just there is a angst um, in the world that I haven't mm-hmm. experienced before. And yeah. I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit about that, because you, you do talk about this idea of burnout mm-hmm. and how... And, and we see college populations are ready to change the world, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, which is very lovely. And I love that energy that comes with that. But just that idea of burning out and how you can understand yourself so that you can continue to help with the suffering that's coming in the world. Yeah, such a good question and like good topic. Um, I, I I mean, I didn't make any of this up. It's all the, my heroes that are the people that have fought for justice forever have all been people who, um, who saw that the forces of love and, um, and to make change from a place of love and compassion is, um, is the only way to stay in the game long enough to continue. And it's the only way to make change that doesn't replicate the systems of oppression that you are trying to emerge out of. Um, And it's really, really hard. I think like our natural instinct, both in pain that's caused from external sources and pain that's caused from internal sources is to be like, kill it, get rid of it, just get it gone, you know? Mm -hmm. And that kind of instinct is natural when you're feeling like it's hurting you. Um, But it will, it just leads to burnout. It leads to like becoming angry and hate filled and, um, and it never works because like whatever you kill then comes back. And so the, the idea is really rooted in a lot of these, the principles of from Thich Nhat Hanh to Martin Luther King Jr. to um, uh, Nelson Mandela and folks that like built entire movements with many other people around creating um, a love-based way to make justice. And that way is to start to understand the ways that you yourself um, divide off things that you hate about yourself and, mm-hmm. and then, it, and, and try and kill them and start to learn to like l- turn those around and understand them and eventually love them as well. And then the same thing in the outside world to, so that you actively working to change injustice, but that you're not making an enemy of anyone. The people are not the problem. What they're doing, the behavior is the problem. And, um, and then your, your solutions look very different because you can't just like kill or imprison or get rid of people anymore. I mean, you can imprison them if they're really causing harm, but on a, on a structural level, you have to kind of undo structures that are causing harm and that deny that kind of humanity of of everyone, including the people that are causing harm. And can you speak a little bit about how you take care of yourself with yes. this idea of suffering so that you don't burn out and you can, I mean, cause it sounds like you're also 
listening as I am. So I understand that of, of, of people's worries and concerns and their fears. Yeah. So just the ability to take care of yourself so that you can continue to do this work. Yes, absolutely. For me, I think the, the biggest thing in that realm, like there's a lot of stuff around self-care and self-care is nice and important and valuable and critical. Definitely. But for me, part of self-care is a part of drawing boundaries and um, and saying like, this is what I can do. This is the edge of where I can work. And I'm going to go all the way up to that edge. And that's the edge of where what I can do and affect and change. And I'm not going to do something for someone else. I'm not going to, because I can't. I'm not going to hold something for someone else because that's theirs to hold and that's their journey. And so all I can do is meet them at the limit, at the place, at, you know, my boundary and where their boundary is and just meet them there over and over again. And that's mm-hmm. like a really important and hard lesson to learn for people, especially that are naturally kind of givers or healers or supporters. Um, but I think it's the only way to kind of stay in the game in the long term, long run. Yeah. So part of what you're saying is learning yourself again and learning, learning what you can tolerate. And I know for, for me, that's been a hard lesson of, I don't have to hold someone else's anger or like I can, I can evaluate, is this really about me or is this about them? Yes. And, and kind of separate it a little bit yes. more, um, creating that boundary, like you're saying, so that this isn't mine, this is yours. And I'm going to yeah. let you continue to hold it. Right, right. And right. it can feel really, it can, you know, sometimes feel like, oh, am I being mean by not picking this up? Mm-hmm. But the truth is like, it's not good for anyone, uh, you know, to, to, to take on things that are not yours. Right, right. Are you seeing just with the world um, how, I'm, I'm just curious how it is affecting the college population and how you guys do deal with that at Mindful NYU? Yes. Um, yeah, especially in the aftermath of the election, I think um, our, many of our students were very like crushed and destroyed and, and saddened. And and then I think um, just this generation and kind of growing up when they are and in the state of the kind of climate emergency that we're in, I think um, there is a real sense that like, I don't know if I can trust the adults to, to get things done anymore. And there's pain in that. Um, and so I think like acknowledging that and acknowledging that there's very good reason why that, that this like generation has a lot of perhaps trust issues <laughs> with, mm-hmm. with like the administration of the university, I think is a, is a big learning for a lot of us. And also to really take our cues from them in terms of like they're asking for support. They're asking for more services that address mental health and sustainability and prevention instead of just, you know, I think all counseling centers at this moment are really overwhelmed across the country. Like you mentioned, like too many people want it and there's not enough people to supply it, especially, you know, at at the lower price points. Right. Um, Or if you take insurance. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And so, um, and so I think that that's really where mindfulness and meditation tools and community building tools can come in 
Um, and we're doing consulting all across the country to sort of help to build up these programs because there's bottomless need on the side of counseling. And so can we start to build the resilience and the, the strength in, in a preventative way? So that's interesting because I was wondering, because it sounds like you guys were one of the first campuses that kind of created this. I mean, maybe not the first, but you said like you you're one of the largest now. Yeah. And so it, it just, um, are you working with other universities and colleges to create such a system? Is that where your work is at right now or? Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. we, it's growing and growing. And I actually just started, um, a company called mindful university consulting for this exact purpose, mm-hmm. um, to go beyond what NYU can, offer um, as an institution because we're just a small office and don't have a lot of staff, but the need is so great out there. And so, um, and so we are now starting to, to build, I'm starting to build through that wing and more resources and more ways we can support campus campuses all over the world. So you're hoping to bring that to like colleges and universities primarily? Yes, exactly. That's wonderful. Yeah. That's wonderful. There's definitely a need for it. Thank you. Yeah, I um, mm-hmm. I we, I think I think so too. Yeah, it's a hard thing, and I was just wondering how um, if if you wanted to share, for, just because I know people like to hear what your mindfulness practice is at this point. Because I do tell people when they have a hard time starting, what if we start with mindful moments? Even yeah, <laughs> just if if you wouldn't mind sharing what you what your mindfulness practice looks like. And I know you have a family at this point. And so yes. um, I have children and I can attest that it can be challenging for me I, to, oh to meditate yes. at times. So. <laughs> How old are your your kids? Um, I have a five-year-old and a seven-year-old and an 11-year-old. Oh, so. wow. Mm-hmm. You're my hero. Um, <laughs> I have just two and it really, there is like no bigger colossal tornado to my meditation practice than them. <laughs> How old are they? Um, they're three and two. Oh, so yes. We're just kind of coming to the end of a period of like pure vortex of like what has happened in my life, <laughs> um, which I think is actually what my next book is going to be about. Yeah, you um, can sleep again at some point. Right? Yes, exactly <laughs> now. Um, so for years, it, for years, it took me a long time to be able to like build up a practice of like, I'm going to sit every single day. It was just really difficult for me. And then finally, I kind of got it into gear and I started and I did it. And that changed so much for me and, and deepened everything and felt like felt like my whole life changed when that was becoming a regularity. And then I had kids and everything got shuffled again because I used to sit in the morning and now they wake up so early that it's just not doable. And so I went for the last probably two years since my littler son was born, um, I really had to find this time where I could find it. And so I would meditate primarily on the subway, my subway ride to work every Mm. day. And, um, and that was where I kind of made that commitment to myself. It was a very different kind of a practice than I used to do, but I would usually put in earphones. Um, sometimes I would listen to an app, but most of the time I would just put on the timer and just practice dropping into my body and softening the thoughts and coming and kind of coming back to my body over and over and over again until I got to my office and 
just recently, I've started to be able to kind of revive my home practice a little bit more in the evenings, um, sitting and practicing there. And then um, probably my biggest learning around having kids was the degree to which my formal sitting practice went down, the more that I tried to amp up what I think what you just mentioned calling mindful moments. So can I be really present with what I'm doing for this amount of time? And because my kids were like consuming all this time, I tried to do that with them and not like constantly reach for my phone, even though I wanted to and not Mm -hmm. like just daydream or like count the minutes till it was over, but really try and take them in when I was either playing them or feeding them and bring my attention to my body and to them and to the moment and like feeling my feet on the ground or my hands doing something. And, um, and that was like a really, it's been like a very beautiful practice, just not what I kind of expected. So I think those are really, those are really valuable moments and places to bring your, your attention and mindfulness if you can. Mm -hmm. And it, it sounds like through that, you've learned a different part of yourself almost. Oh, totally. And, and I think uh, like deepened my relationship with them, which is a nice right. side product. Cause I think I went from being like, oh my God, what are these humongous distractions to my life mm-hmm. <laughs> to being like, oh, they're pretty amazing. I can actually spend some time there. Right. And so you were talking about, I'm, I'm just curious, um, cause I, I'm aware of our time, but just um, what are your next steps? I know it sounds like you're starting this new organization and I don't know if if you want to talk about kind of what your plans are in the future. Yeah, uh, it's it's pretty much twofold. Um, so I um, I've been really really deeply enjoying teaching, and so I'm going to obviously continue that, and then to start this consulting company again. It's called Mindful University Consulting. And, um, and seeing how we can help other universities and colleges replicate, build, seed mindfulness programs and, um, both for students, but also for staff, um, and human resources departments and faculty. And so that's really exciting. And then the other one, the other big project in the works is this second book that I'm working on, which is, um, how do you uh, apply these mindfulness and meditation tools to when you um, to parenting and when like your entire life has been completely turned upside down? Oh, that's lovely. Yeah, <laughs> I'll have to call you again when when that book comes out. That would be great. That mm-hmm. would be really great. Well, I really appreciate your time. This is like such a valuable resource, and I think. Um, and you actually have a, a lot of nice examples of ways people can choose to meditate in your book. Yes. And, and I think that is really helpful. And I know that um, the, the, that period of time is such a challenging time for many people as they try to figure out who they are and what they want in life. Yes. And so it's a nice way to kind of, I think your book is a nice way to, um, for people to explore how to get to know themselves in a better way so that they can figure out what they want their life to look like and who they are. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for taking the time to be on our program. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. And if I may just say that if anybody wants to get in touch, I'd love to kind of get in touch and see if I can be of service or help. And I'm at yaelshy.com. Thank you so much, Yael. Thank you, Christy.